Welcome to the 113th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the fantastic MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to erotica to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Tim Alberta, the chief political correspondent for Politico magazine and author of one of America's hottest books, the New York Times bestseller, American Carnage, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. And whether you're a political junkie or not, a Trump supporter or not, please say not. I think you're really going to love this one. We talk book deals, we talk getting politicians to open up, we talk about securing 40 minutes with President Trump inside the White House. If nothing else, have sympathy on Tim because he's a Detroit Tigers fan. Really, he is. And he's right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Tim, first of all, thank you for doing this. Very much appreciate it. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Let me ask you, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I know you, you're at this point in promoting a book, which I've been at too, where... Uh, you're being asked the same questions over and over again. You're doing one interview after another, after another, after another. It's really intensive. It's exciting. It's ex- exasperating, exhausting, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, what has this been like for you? First book, hyper intense, lots of interviews. Are you losing your shit? Are you keeping it together? Are you enjoying it? Are you hating it? Where are you? Uh, man, that's a good question. You know, it's, it's, a little bit surreal, obviously. You can remember the first time you saw your name on a book in a bookstore and you're just sort of frozen there staring at it and wondering, you know, why anybody isn't coming to buy it. And you're almost like tempted to just stand there, like waving it around, like, hey, I hear this book is kick ass, you know, and, and then you kind of go through the stages of, yeah, the media blitz. And, you know, I think in the first week alone, I was on, I don't know, I probably did 30 TV shows in like five days. And so it's, you know, maybe that's a little, a little inflated, maybe 25, but it was, you know, it's a lot. And so I'm between New York and back to DC where I live. And, uh, you know, I've got a, a car taking me all over the place, which makes me feel a lot cooler than I actually am. And I got three little kids at home and fortunately I've got them to keep me grounded and, and a wife who's pretty badass, and she's, um, super understanding and super encouraging and supportive of all of this. And so, it's definitely a whirlwind, but I'm, I'm making the best of it. I'm trying to enjoy it as, uh, you know, for, for, for what it is and for as long as it lasts, because I know that, you know, all glory is fleeting, as they say. And, and in a couple of weeks, I'll just be another schmo. So, um, but I'm, I'm enjoying it, uh, for the time being. It's actually a weird, I swear to God, it's the weirdest thing ever because you, um, even though you just express what's going to happen, it's really weird when it does happen. Like toward the end of promoting, you get, you're really beaten down by it and then it stops and you just want more people to ask you about your book. It's like the weirdest <laughs> thing, actually. <laughs> it's super weird. Yeah. You're like, you're like, really? Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of fatigued from all of that, but if you could just give me a little more of it, just a taste. You're going to get like a text from like Jimmy's podcast, listenership seven. And he'll be like, Hey, Tim, I know you're really busy. And you'll be like, no, no, really. I'm pretty good. Yep. You want to talk? <laughs> yep. I would love to talk to you guys. I hear you have a great podcast. <laughs> I, you know, I was thinking about your book. Like I had the misfortune years ago of, uh, writing a biography of Barry Bonds and it coming out two weeks after another biography of Barry Bonds, um, which I thought was, was not great. And you have a book coming out at a time when everyone is writing political books. 
there are just a gazillion of them. It seems like every other week someone is writing about Trump or someone is writing about Hillary or blah, blah, blah. Um, number one, how big of a concern was that sort of releasing a political book in an ocean of political books? And um, I don't know, what, what, were the, what were the sort of uh, factors going into the timing of the release when it came out uh, and how you were going to release it? You know, it wasn't as big a concern as, as one might think, simply because I knew that when I took this project on that I wasn't trying to write a Trump book. And, you know, look, I, I definitely left some money on the table when I took it to auction and when I shot the proposal around because I was really clear with people that it wasn't going to be a Trump book, that this wasn't fire and fury, that, that I wasn't trying to take people on this sort of gossipy palace intrigue ride uh, inside the turmoil at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And look, there is some of that in the book, uh, in the in the latest most chapters. But what I was really trying to do and what I really emphasized in, in meeting with the publishers and the editors, I, I would say, look, you know, I think the question people are going to have both today and 10 years from now and 50 years from now is how did we get to this place? What created the environment that was conducive to Donald Trump becoming president in the first place? And I think trying to tell a trying to reconstruct a period of history in a really fun and compelling and 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 readable way that is you know both relevant today and relevant 50 years from now that's that's sort of a a scholarship married with a lot of sort of fun gritty on the ground reporting in real time i i think that that's something that hasn't really been done or at least there, it hasn't been done much in the political realm and you know whenever you meet with these uh, editors and, and certainly my agents at the beginning, Jeff, I'm sure you've had similar experiences. They say, well, what kind of, you know, like, what's the comp? What, what, what is, what is the sort of book that you're trying to write? And I would just sort of say to them, look, I don't want to sound, you know, arrogant in, in any way here, but I don't know that there is really a blueprint for what I'm trying to do here. I haven't really seen another political book that is attempting to do what I would like to do with this. And so I guess I wasn't super concerned about other books and about the market being flooded with with political books because I thought that mine would be pretty distinct in, in what I was trying to accomplish. What I did worry about was the events surrounding the the rollout and the release of the book because you just never know, especially with this president and with this White House, you just never know, you know, what what thing is going to blow up and certainly even beyond, you know, the the immediate confines of the White House, you don't know if uh, a civil war is going to break out in Somalia. You don't know if a Supreme Court justice is going to die suddenly. You just don't know where the news cycle is going to be. And obviously, that's a concern for anybody writing a book. But certainly, for the last few months, I was not getting a lot of sleep. And I was mostly just holding my breath, uh, hoping that nothing would happen that would just sort of, you know, drop a bomb on the news cycle and distract everybody from the book itself. So when you when you took this to your agent, was your agent like, okay, we need a 40-page proposal. We need this. We need that. Like, how much did you put... How much did you put into the proposal before you shipped the thing out, the idea out to people? I, yeah, I actually put quite a lot into the proposal because it was impressed upon me that, look, you know, you're a first time author. You're not a household name. I mean, people people know who you are in the beltway, you know, in the political class. But but beyond that, nobody knows who the heck you are. So you got to make sure that what you're putting on paper is something that's really compelling to these folks in New York who, who have never heard of you before. And so... I, I did put a lot of work into it and I, and I, and I did try to impress upon people with the proposal that, you know, that I would have the goods, that I would have a lot of reporting on these individuals from 
Trump to Pence to Boehner to Ryan, who uh, I think are some of the leading actors in in this in this play. But but the the proposal again, Jeff, was really oriented around this idea of you know historical sweep and trying to tell a much broader story than just the story of you know every minute every day inside the Trump White House and. You know, I was a little discouraged, if I'm being honest, because when I went to New York with the proposal and when we sat down with some of these editors, basically almost everybody who I talked with was like, right, right, right. But how do we make this a Trump book? And uh, right. and and they were sort of missing the point that I was making. And so I was I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little discouraged after finishing the proposal, after finishing the proposal and after taking it up there, um, because it, it didn't really get the reception, at least initially, that I was hoping it would get. And ultimately... Really, the one editor who who seemed into it and who seemed to understand what I was saying and what I wanted to do is Jonathan Jo up at Harper Collins, and he's the guy who I wound up signing with. That's really interesting. I wrote a uh, I had a book come out a couple uh, almost a year ago now about uh, an old football league called the USFL, and um, Trump owned a team, the New Jersey Generals, and ninety five percent of the questions I was getting was, well, what about Trump? What about Trump? What about Trump? And you want to say, no, 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 there's so much more here than just Trump, or it's not just Trump. <laughs> well, what about Trump? What about Trump? What about Trump? And I, I, it just seems like there's a real temptation to think that all people want to hear about is Trump. And it almost seems like the thing we're battling against is in many circles, the last thing, even if you like him, people seem to want to hear about is Trump, but all the media wants to talk about is Trump. I know. And then the media complains that, uh, you know, that he's got this sort of, this this uh, chokehold on the American consciousness, and you know, look, I'm I'm a part of the Fourth Estate, uh, and I would probably say that I'm more critical of my profession than most uh, who are in the you know political press corps. Um, Trump is in many ways, Jeff, I think a self fulfilling prophecy because you know, for people today who want to go back and complain that that Trump has just had this sort of direct connection with with voters and that he was able to just suffocate everyone with his you know this ubiquitous presence that he's had not just politically but culturally we have to look in the mirror and say look you know we're the ones who gave him three billion dollars in free media during the campaign we're the one who let him call into sunday talk shows when you know the sunday shows would never let anybody else phone in from you know from from the comforts of home on a Sunday morning while he's wearing his, you know, gilded pajamas on, on Fifth Avenue. I mean, that was, that was unprecedented in a lot of ways. I think it was, you know, the former CBS president who said it might not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, uh, talking about the coverage of Trump. So obviously, as I said, it, it sort of becomes self-fulfilling and self-perpetuating at a certain point because you're right. Uh, Trump has this saturation effect where all we can talk about is him and people do get sick of it, but then when you turn on the TV or turn on talk radio or you pick up a newspaper, he's everywhere. And, and it's, it's, it's a little bit exhausting, obviously, for, for those of us who, who would like to read and hear about other things. And I've gotten to the point now with my, you know, Washington Post home delivery where I, even though all my buddies are the ones who are writing on page one, I do, I go straight to Metro and straight to sports because I just, I need to consume other, uh, other bits of information and round out my news diet at this point. One thing I, I feel like uh, on this podcast, when I'm talking journalism, it's a lot of stuff I've experienced. And one thing I've never experienced, um, two seconds after us both admitting that talking about Trump gets exhausting, is I've never interviewed a president. I've never entered the White House. You had a 40-minute sit down with Donald Trump for this book. And I actually am fascinated 
by the process of getting an interview with the president and then actually sitting down across from a president. Uh, how do you get, how do you even get an interview with the president of the United States? Yeah, it's a good question. The process of it is pretty, pretty interesting. And it was something I hadn't gone through before myself. Uh, that was my first time in the Oval, my first time sitting down with the president. So what I did was I spent about four or five months just harassing Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is, of course, the former White House press secretary. And I knew Sarah a little bit because I had covered her dad's campaigns and she and I had crossed paths here and there on the campaign trail, you know, long before she entered the Trump orbit. So we knew one another and had a, you know, a fine working relationship. Um, and basically, I just over a period of, yeah, about five months, I guess, I would send her an email probably once every two weeks, maybe, you know, you're walking this fine line between not wanting to harass people and not wanting to annoy them to the point where they just tell you to piss off, uh, but also wanting to stay in their inbox and, and make sure they don't forget about you. So she did respond a couple of times and said, you know, we're looking into this standby, but then she would never get back to me. So I had to keep following up, keep following up. And actually, what was funny, Jeff, is that the book was due, the manuscript was due January 31st. And, you know, starting back in like October, I had been emailing her, you know, uh, several times a month and just sort of kept getting a stiff arm and, and saying there, there was never a hard no. It was just, you know, wait and see. So finally, in about mid-January, I said, Sarah, look, I'm, I'm closing in on, on deadline here for filing the manuscript and all my other reporting is done. Uh, the president is the last person who I'm, I'm trying to interview here. And she said, OK, well, I'm trying to make it happen. Uh, we might have something for you soon. Just sit tight. And so I did. And uh, and then a couple of days before the manuscript was due, I said, hey, just FYI, I've got to file this in a couple of days. But if we can still make something work, I'd be happy to you know, delay the manuscript. I, I can buy some more time with the publisher. Just let me know. And I didn't hear anything back. So I filed the manuscript on January 31st. And I think it was two days later, Sarah emailed me and said, Hey, can you be here on Thursday? Like, I think she emailed me on like a Monday and said, like, Hey, can you be here on Thursday? And I said, yeah, of course. And so I, you know, called the editor and I said, well, you know, bad news is uh, you're going to have to hold off on this manuscript a little bit. Uh, because the good news is I've got this sit down with the president and obviously I'm going to have to take the material from the sit down and go back and weave it all throughout the, the book, you know, starting with the prologue. And, and actually I wound up completely, you know, re recreating the prologue from scratch and uh, shaping it around the interview with him and, and parts of the epilogue as well. And then I had all these other bits and pieces that I needed to use in the body of the book. Uh, and he was obviously thrilled with that. The editor, he, that that's, you know, a good, good news phone call for him, because of course you want to have an interview with the president. So I went over there and I got about 40 minutes, which was longer than I expected. I thought it would, might be only 15 or 20 minutes, but Trump is a bit of a, a downhill locomotive. You know, when you, when you get him started, his, his staffers were trying to cut him off at several points and he just kept going. And so it was, it was pretty useful. He's hard. He's a hard person to have a linear conversation with, but he was, really insightful on certain things when I could sort of focus him and kind of, you know, uh, kind of, kind of grab him and redirect him back to certain topics. And he would actually be pretty interesting and have some really insightful things to say, but it was hard to keep him on topic. Okay. Tim, the president will see you now. Right. And I know like people have different opinions on Trump, just like they did Obama and blah, blah, blah. but the, the president will see you now and you're walking into whatever room. Is there a, uh, I don't know. Is there a palm sweaty moment? Is it no big deal because you've been doing this long enough? Are there certain ways you're supposed to address a president when you're interviewing him that you wouldn't Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan? Is it, 
Is there anything different to it? Hmm. You know, it's funny in retrospect, I, I don't, I don't think I was very nervous. And I feel like maybe at the time I was a little surprised at not feeling more nervous. I think I was more nervous like that morning and like that day driving over there and going through secret service protocol and everything else. But like once I was in the outer oval waiting to be taken in, uh, I was, I didn't feel real nervous. Uh, you know, I felt like I was pretty prepared and I should say that I've met Trump. Uh, a number of times before this. So um, not since he had taken office, because I don't cover the White House. So I had never been over there since he had taken office. But I had talked with him a few times during the campaign. I had talked with him once uh, back in 2012 when he was flirting with a run. He didn't wind up pulling the trigger, obviously. But I had, I had talked to him then briefly. So I've interacted with him a handful of times. And so, you know, he is a big guy. And he's obviously a larger than life personality. So I think some people who are interacting with him for the first time, Jeff, are probably a little bit taken aback and a little bit shaken by that. But, you know, I, but I did, he didn't really have that effect on me. So, so I certainly was in awe of the Oval Office because I'd never been in there before. And it's really incredible setting. Uh, so much history and, and so much has gone on in there. And I had about, I don't know, 90 seconds or so just sitting there waiting for him to come in. So I was just sort of taking it all in and looking around like, man, this is, you know, for, for a community college kid from small town, Michigan, like this is pretty cool. I never thought I'd be in the Oval Office. And then when he came in, we jumped into it and we just started rapping. And, and, and uh, I, I didn't think much about, you know, man, I'm sitting here with the President of the United States until I left, until I was driving back home. And that's kind of when it hit me. But in the moment, I don't know, I guess it's just you've been doing this for a little while and you're trained to just sort of, uh, you know, keep your cool and listen to what they're saying and make sure that you're responding to what they're saying. And asking smart follow-ups. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty surreal actually looking back on it, but in the moment it didn't feel, you know, like it was too big of a moment. Early on the first I heard of your book where, where the, uh, was the backlash from the Paul Ryan quotes from Paul Ryan said, uh, we've gotten numb by it all, not in government, but where we live our lives. We have a responsibility to, to try and rebuild. Don't call a woman a horse face. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't cheat on anything. Be a good person. Set a good example. And Ryan obviously got sort of slaughtered in many circles with the quotes. Trump destroyed him. My my first thought was, holy shit, how did this guy even get a political figure to go off of message, even a retired political figure to go off message? And it seems like one of the battles of your job, and in particular writing a book like this, is getting people who live in a very comfortable zone to break out of their zone a little bit. How do you do that? Yeah, it's a huge part of the job. And, uh, you know, it's I'm not always successful in doing so. I, I have a rule that is not completely hard and fast, but I try to abide by it as much as I can, Jeff, which is whenever I am with an elected official for a story, I, I refuse, unless there is absolutely no way around it, I refuse to do the interview in their office, in their congressional office, because oh. they are just way too comfortable in there. And um, they are, most of these guys are trained deception artists, and they know how to turn on the fog machine. And if you get them in their environment, it's like going into Lambo in December, man. Like you're just not going to win. Uh, it's 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 really hard to get one of these guys um, sort of off their talking points and out of their comfort zone if they're in their office. So I always try to like a couple of weeks ago, I'm writing a, a magazine feature for the fall about sort of the collapse of of the U.S. Congress and and the implications that the dysfunctional legislative branch has for America that are actually much farther reaching than some of the turmoil in the executive branch. And so I sat down with these two congressmen, one Republican, one Democrat, and they are tasked with running this new select committee on modernization of Congress, which essentially is code for like, how do we clean up Congress? It's a, it's a 
shitty mess and what do we do about it? And so I sat down with these two guys and I, I took them to this greasy spoon diner that's just a few blocks away from uh, the building itself, from the Capitol building. And, you know, I kind of went round and round with their staffs a little bit about it, but it was really important to me. I said, look, I don't want to sit down with these guys in one of their offices. Like, you know, initially I was pushing for a beer and we had a beer set up, but then schedules changed and we had to make lemonade. So we wound up settling for a breakfast, but it was really great. And, and a couple of different points, I got these guys to really open up and talk about like, yeah, look, you know, they're, they're both pretty young guys and they're really effective members of Congress, of which there aren't many. And so these are good guys to have in charge of this committee. But it's a little bit of a fool's errand because there's just, you know, they're, they're nibbling around the edges and, and they can't really take the home run swings that they need to take to try and fix Congress. And a couple of times they sort of they were aware that I wanted to get them to talk openly and candidly about that. And they were really careful for the most part not to do so. But there were a few times where we had really good breakthrough moments where they did just sort of throw up their hands and say, like, yeah, look, if we, you know, if, if we don't start to see some progress here, then why the hell am I waking up every morning and, and coming here? And why am I leaving my family for four or five days a week to do this? And so I, I just I know that it's really hard, even in those moments where they've been disciplined for 95 percent of the interview, but you need that five percent to really bring a story to mm -hmm. life. I know that it's super hard to get that 5% if you're playing on their home turf and if you're playing by their rules. And so I've had really good relationships with, you know, politicians and with their staffs over the years. I, I've been, I've always been really fair to them, I think. And, and I've always been honest with them. If I'm going to, if I'm going to hit them over the head with a story, I let them know ahead of time. So, you know, so at least they're not surprised by it. So I, I, I try to be fair, but I do always try to make sure that if nothing else, I get these people sort of out of their comfort zone and in a place where where they're willing to open up a little bit. And for, you know, it's different for everybody. Like Paul Ryan, uh, you know, out of his comfort zone means out of Washington. But like I actually did meet with him in his uh, little congressional office back in Janesville, Wisconsin. But I've covered Ryan for long enough to know that Janesville is where Paul Ryan will open up. And it like it doesn't matter where he is, as long as he is in his hometown and he's got like you know, a, a sweater vest and, and two weeks of beard growth, like he's ready, he's ready to talk. And so it's, you know, when I sat down with him there, I could tell immediately that, that he had some things he wanted to say, and that this was going to be very different from the interviews I had done with him, uh, you know, while he was still in office, uh, certainly as speaker working with Donald Trump, because I did a book interview with him, you know, six months earlier, uh, while he was still speaker, and he was very buttoned up. He was very careful not to say anything negative about Trump. and then. Six months later, when we sat down for his post-retirement interview for the book, it was just a completely different guy. And I could tell immediately that since we were back in Janesville and since he had retired, that he was going to be much more forthcoming. Did you enjoy writing a book? Because I'm freaking, I have, a, I have a week left until my book is due. And I'm like, you know, five steps away from pure insanity. Uh, I'm talking <laughs> to walls and I'm, and I'm eating paint. Did you enjoy the process or were you eating paint? So, you know, this is going to sound crazy and, uh, and I mean it. It's, I'm not just, I'm not saying this. I'm not lying. I had talked with a lot of friends who had written books and, and guys who I consider mentors and in, in the political journalism realm who all of them to a man would say, look, this is going to be the worst experience of your life. Like you have to, you have <laughs> to recognize how terrible this is going to be for you, for your family. You know, I've got a wife and three little kids and, and they're like, you know, you are, you are going to be tortured in, in doing this. And I got to say, Jeff, I maybe I'm a masochist. I really enjoyed writing the book. I, I didn't find it to be a really, really um, just 
soul-crushing experience in the way that a lot of people described. I'll tell you what I did not enjoy, which was the six-month period after filing the manuscript. Um, oh, yeah. I did not en- I did not enjoy the edits. I did not and, – and, and frankly, it's not because of my editor. He's, a, he's really great, and he and I vibed really well. But I filed a much longer manuscript than I was supposed to. It, the contract had called for 120,000 words. I filed 220,000 words, and I didn't do it <laughs> – Deliberately, I, I honestly wasn't adding up all of these chapters because I had them all in different Word documents. And so by the time I, you know, January came and I was getting ready to file it, I added it up and I said, oh, shit, I did not realize it was this long. So we had to cut it down by about 30,000 words so that it wouldn't scare the hell out of people when they picked it up in a Barnes and Noble. And so going through the editing process and then after that, going through, you know, finalizing the jacket and the blurbs. And the PR stuff. And I was on all these conference calls about, you know, the, like the, 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 the rollout strategy, all of that stuff I did not enjoy because it was, because it was really scary and it's really anxiety inducing. And you're starting to realize like, oh my God, like I've poured myself into this thing. And what if nobody buys it? What if it's a total flop? What if I have to tell my kids like, Hey, I barely saw you for the last, you know, six months because I wrote this book that nobody wanted to read anyway. So that's the part that was really nerve wracking. For me, but the actual writing of the book, I I don't know. I, I kind of enjoyed it. I found it to be pretty fun. Are you at the point where you're going? Are you on Amazon.com repeatedly going refresh, 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 looking at your uh, your sales rank? So you know what's funny is I I was for about the <laughs> week leading up to the pub uh, the pub date, and then I was for the first few days after the pub date, and then I told myself, you know what, this is this is sick. Like I I, I have to stop doing this. So. <laughs> I have gotten updates, periodic updates from my editor and my agents because we're all on a text message thread and, and, um, the book has, has still been doing very well. It's been, you know, right around the top 10 basically for the last couple of weeks. And so they keep up to, they, they keep updating me unsolicited, which is frankly, it's, it's nice. I do appreciate still knowing that it's doing well, but I have myself stopped clicking on Amazon because it was kind of driving me insane. Do, what about you, Jeff? Do you, do you click on, on your books often? No, I will, I will Google to see every now and then to see if people have, you know, referenced them or written about them. But I certainly, I know because it's depressing because you're not going up time to time is not kind to uh, Amazon ranking. So like, you know, after a while, there's no, what's the point? It's a, you know, there's no joy in being 17,828, you know? (laughs) Oh, well, that's, you know, the funny thing is though, like once you're up into like the, you know, 25,000 and up range, it's like, you know, you can be at like 60,000 one day, but then if you sell two books, you jump up to like 30,000, right? So yeah, it's, it's yeah. uh it's a small margin once you're up there. You're going to get something awesome in about maybe a year, a year and a half, which I get every now and then, which is someone will tweet to me a photo of my book at a dollar store or like <laughs> on the stand and, and they'll be like, Hey, I saw your book. And I'm like, Hey, fuck you. You know, and then people like, <laughs> people like <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> You know, I, yeah, honestly, I will look forward to that. I, you never know what's coming your way when you do this the first time, right? And, and I'm sure you remember doing it your first time. Like you're just, you're flying blind in a lot of respects. And so I actually, I got a great note from this, from this kid the other day. He's a high school junior and he's taking AP poli sci classes and he lives in sort of rural Ohio. And he wrote me a note and said, Hey man, like I've been reading all about your book in the news and I'd love to read it. Um, but you know, I'm working this summer, just basically trying to save up for college. And like, I don't have you know money to, to buy a book. And I said, dude, I'm like, I'm so honored. Like if you just give me your address and I'll send you a couple and like, you know, give one to your high school library and, you know, hold on to one for yourself. And like, 
And uh, I mentioned this to somebody and they're like, no, dude, like you need to hold out and make his ass buy a book. And I'm like, no, no, man, you're missing the point. Like if I, you know, the fact that anybody wants to read what I've written on paper is just so incredible to me that like I would, yeah. I will personally go to Barnes and Noble and like buy the books myself and ship them out to people at this point. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And happy birthday. You're turning 16 this week. What'd you get me? A poem. Oh, no. Oh, yes. You're turning 16, and that's super swell. However, bring home a date, and I'll kill him. I'll fucking kill him. Do you hear me? Do not bring that boy into my house. Do you get it? Do you got it? Seriously, I have a machete, and I'll fucking kill him. Dad, Dad, calm down. Chuck's really sweet. Chuck, what? Seriously, relax. He doesn't love me. He's only dating me because 503 Sports is your sponsor. And he wants the 10% discount you get at 503-sports.com on throwback jerseys, hats, and t-shirts. He's a jerk. He sounds like a nice boy. So I know I went to school with Paul Kane of the Washington Post. and uh, Oh, did you I really? Had, I had, Yeah, I did. We're both University of Delaware grads. And um, I had Paul on this podcast maybe a year and a year and a half ago. And I just wanted him to tell me that everything's going to be okay because I'm, I feel like I am buried beneath a world of Trump and climate change and nonstop political stuff and hating Pelosi one day and liking Pelosi. Now, I mean, you mentioned Sarah Huckabee Sanders and I immediately feel my blood kind of boil. Do you find yourself in your job playing therapist to people, you know, do people just want to know that we're going to be okay? And do they want you to tell them that? Yeah, they do. And no, I don't, because I don't think we're going to be okay. Um, I, I'd be a really, really shitty therapist. So I have to give these talks all the time to different groups. Um, you know, some of the talks are about Congress. Some of the talks are just are, are about elections. Some of them are about like American politics in general, you know, and all, so most of them are around DC, but sometimes I travel people, you know, put me on a plane and come give a speech. And, you know, I, I say to people at the outset, look, if, if you are hoping for somebody to come in here and give you and everything is going to be okay, pep talk, I'm not your guy. Because from my front row seat covering politics and specifically covering Congress, uh, which, as I, as I alluded to earlier, Jeff, I, I just think the, the chaos and the dysfunction in the legislative branch of the federal government is actually a, a much graver threat to the country over the long term than, than what's happening in the executive branch because, you know, that's a transient office. The president's come and go and it was designed that way. This sort of systemic dysfunction that you see in Congress is not, it's only getting worse because all of these sort of incentive systems and, you know, behavioral structures are warped in a way to reward bad behavior and to increase the polarization and, uh, you know, diminish the incentive for, for compromise. And so when I, whenever I give the, one of these talks, like I'll kind of do chapter and verse on like what brought us to this point, where we are now and where we're going. And it's funny, like I give, I give a lot of talks to this organization through Georgetown University. It's called the Government Affairs Institute. And they have a lot of PhDs who work there, super smart people, way smarter than I am. And, and I've become friends with them over the years because I speak to all their seminars. And they've, they started calling me the angel of death a couple of years ago because, you know, people walk out of these seminars just looking for the nearest happy hour or, you know, looking for the nearest blunt object to impale themselves on. And I don't take any joy in that necessarily. I, um, you know, there's some dark humor involved in it, but I really do think it's important for people to recognize that like we're in trouble, like as a country. And, and I think a lot of it has nothing to do with Trump. Obviously he has accelerated some of these 
trends that that are so troublesome in terms of you know the polarization and and the nativism and the appeals to xenophobia and everything else i don't dismiss the role he's playing in all of this but i think that the forces that produce trump are going to be here long after he's gone and if we don't start to reckon with the role that we're all playing individually in that and and what we can do about it then i think we're in trouble man like big trouble so people do want me to play therapist but after about five minutes on the couch they want to jump off the couch and sprint out of the office is this just a broken idea? Like, is the is the democratic ideal and sort of the American ideal a broken and unfixable shit show? I think it's broken. I don't think it's unfixable. But I think fixing it requires people to sort of step out of their silos and, and um, you know, defect from their tribes, at least temporarily, and recognize that some of the big issues we're facing here really aren't partisan issues, and they're not even really ideological issues. Um, the problem is, man, in this environment, I mean, look, all throughout history, you have seen societies that go through these really turbulent periods, especially following a sharp economic downturn. And, and that's sort of where we are now. Obviously, the economy is coming back. But for the better part of the last 15 years, you've had a lot of people who are losing jobs, who are out of work and wages are stagnating. And they're looking at the political class and Wall Street playing by one set of rules. And they think they're getting screwed and the system's rigged against them. And they should be angry, right? And the problem is, depending on your political point of view, you're going to harness that anger and channel that anger and filter that anger through a partisan lens or through a tribal lens. And what it does is it leads to the sort of stalemate we have now, and it leads to, you know, the gerrymandering of political districts and the weaponizing of the gears of government. And it just, you know, it's a mess. And and so, like, how do you climb out of it? So it is broken. And I think, you know, the first steps that have to be taken to fix it is for everybody to sort of agree to some baseline things that are just reasonable and and, and rational, such as, like, if I was king for a day... You take a magic wand and you wave it and you create a nonpartisan redistricting commission in every state in America, right? And maybe that's like getting in the weeds for some people, but it's so important, man, because I don't think Americans understand. I always start off my speeches by saying this. Nine out of 10 members of Congress are not elected in November. They're elected in their primaries because that's the way these districts are drawn. Nine out of 10 congressional districts are not competitive in a general election. Your only chance of losing that seat as an incumbent is losing it in a primary. And so... When nine out of 10 members of Congress don't have to worry about losing to a member of the other party when their seat is not truly contested in a general election, think about what, how that incentivizes your work every day and think about, you know, how you orient your sort of political life and your political goals. So, like, if you could just start there and, and create as many of these congressional districts in America as close to 50-50 coin flip districts as possible, that would, at just a foundational level, completely uh, redraw the political landscape and you would have suddenly politicians and, and elected members of Congress coming from districts where they couldn't afford to be assholes. They have to go back and talk to people in both parties. They have to go back and talk to the pro-life group and the pro-choice group. You have to go back and talk to the ACLU one day and to the NRA the next day. You have to engage all of your constituents. And where we are in America today is the simple fact is, Jeff, and I know I'm ranting here, but like most of these elected officials, they don't have to engage all of their constituents. They only have to engage 55 to 60 percent of their constituents because they know if they keep that small majority mobilized behind them, they're never going to lose an election. And that's a terrible place to be, you know, both as a Congress, as a political system and as a country.
Honestly, God, I don't know how you cover this stuff all the time and not freaking want to slit a wrist. It's so dark. It is. Um, and, you know, <laughs> honestly, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm being totally forthcoming with you. I don't know how much longer I'll do it because, uh, you know, I went to school. Uh, I transferred from, uh, from a community college uh, outside of Detroit. I transferred to Michigan State and, and I wanted to be a sports writer. That was my, that was my thing. So I, you know, I, I came up reading guys like you and, and wanted to do, you know, I really wanted to be a beat writer. I wanted to, you know, travel with a major league baseball team. I thought that that would just be the life. Right. And, uh, and I sort of stumbled into politics accidentally and I've really enjoyed it. And it's look, the, the, there are a lot of parallels between, I think, sports journalism and political journalism. Obviously, you're covering these contests and these big personalities and, and the stakes are high. And obviously, the stakes are much higher in politics than in sports. But there is a burnout factor. And at a certain point, man, you do look around and just think like, geez, why am I getting out of bed for this anymore? It's just it's it is sort of soul crushing and, and self-defeating. And uh, so I think after 2020, you know, I'm going to take a long look around and think about what I want to do next and probably step back probably from the day to day of of political journalism and, and think about taking on some other projects that will allow me to, you know, keep a foot in the door of covering politics because I'm good at it. And it's something that I know. But I also think that I could be good at maybe doing some other things that aren't so, uh, you know, uh, wrist cutting inducing or however you might think of that. There's going to be I, I imagine this scene right now. It's in Comerica Park or whatever it's called now. And it's in the back of the press box. And a bunch of guys are like, who's that new kid covering the Tigers? Uh, I don't know. It's this guy, Tim. He's writing for the Athletics, <laughs> the Tigers' new beat writer. But that was that guy, no. You know, but the problem is, Jeff, that the Tigers' beat is the only thing darker than politics right now. Yeah, so, exactly. like, I, I don't know if I don't know if that would be the welcome relief that I need. Uh, let me ask you a final question. You don't have to read through the lines to see you're not a huge fan of sort of Michael Wolf's work when it comes to the White House, and I certainly am not. I, I feel like we are doing no one a, a favor by being gossipy and catty and overhearing conversations and immediately writing them down. It just seems like that kind of journalism makes us all look like a freaking bunch of douchebags. Um, and it drives me crazy. Am I overstating your, your feelings on this? Uh, no, you're probably understating them. And look, I want to make clear that it's not just that type of journalism that sort of grates on me. Uh, as long as what's being reported is accurate, then I can at least live with it. But I think, you know, look, guys like Michael Wolf, they're not journalists. They're just not. Um, you know, Wolf did not use primary sources in a lot of cases in his book. He's passing off second and third and fourth hand anecdotes that are just demonstrably untrue in some cases. And look, when you talk to, to people around the White House uh, at the Times and at the Post, people who are just great reporters, you know, friends of mine who cover the administration every day, I mean, they 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 could not think any less of Michael Wolf. And it's not because he's doing, you know, palace intrigue journalism. It's because his approach to reporting is just not ethical. And uh, I'll leave it there before I really go down a rabbit hole. But yeah, you're right. I Like, I think on the one hand, um, there is an appetite for this minute by minute coverage of the White House. And I get that. I mean, it's look, we're living in these crazy times and people want to know what's going on. And you know, readership at the Times is through the roof and, you know, CNN ratings are all Trump all the time. But, you know, I, I work in magazine journalism and I have the luxury to not get caught up in all that stuff, thankfully. But I understand why the appetite is there and why a lot of journalists feel the need to kind of feed that beast, because there's a revenue model 
that's tied to it. Um, but hopefully, you know, whenever Trump is gone, uh, there will be a new president. And my hope is that everybody can sort of take a breath and pop a Xanax and like, you know, ease off the gas a little bit, because I think we all need to just like collectively, we need to take a little national siesta here, because uh, this has been a very intense period for for everybody. You know, wait, Tim, it's so funny. I swear to God, I wish someone would listen to me. I've been saying for two years now, if I were running for president against Trump, my number one pitch would be, I should not be in your life every day. Like, this is unnatural. The, ne- the president right. of the United States, you should not be thinking about me every day. That is absolutely crazy. And if you think about your lives for the past four years, you've been forced to think about the president of the United States every day, multiple times a day. You're rechecking and rechecking about what he has said, what he has done. That is a unnatural way of thinking. And we need to end that. Dude, I look, if you want to, I will come work for your campaign if that's what you want to run on, because it's great minds think alike, Jeff. I swear I've said the exact same thing to people. Like if, if I'm Biden or if I'm Kamala Harris or any of these people, like, yes, you have a policy platform. Yes, you have a set of promises that you're making. Yes, you have a stump speech. But like inherent to that stump speech or, or you know, uh, some sort of a thematic undercurrent of that stump speech is like, look, we're going to go back to normal. Like we're, we're I am going to I am not going to be driving the daily news cycle. I Yeah. Like to your point, man, like you want to be able to take your kid to a friggin soccer game and not have somebody want to talk to you about politics. Right. That's like it's not natural. We, like that's not how. Most Americans are wired. We don't want to be. And it's funny, man, because I look, I travel all over the country for, for this job and I talk to a lot of voters, including voters at Trump rallies and even people who love Trump. There's a fatigue here that, that is set in. A lot of people are just weary of it, even if they even if they're going to vote for him again, even if they love his policies, even if they love his behavior and his rhetoric and they you know, and he fires them up. Even among some of those people, there's a just a little bit of like. All right, like, let's catch our breath here. You know, this is getting a little bit exhausting. So I think you're right. I just don't know if any of these Democrats will be, you know, savvy enough to to incorporate that into their into their messaging. But I think they'd be smart to. Are you a uh, final question? Are you are you planning on writing? Will your next book be Matt Stafford, my story? Man, I'll tell you what, if Stafford can win a playoff game, I'll write a love letter to him. I'll, I'll write a children's <laughs> book about how he's, the, you know, the, the, the savior of the city of Detroit. Like my expectations aren't that high, Jeff. I mean, shit, all I want. You know, we've played in one playoff game in my life. Oh, excuse me. We've won one playoff game in my life. And, you know, and I was like six. And, you know, Stafford is the only 10-year veteran in NFL history for whom potential is still a buzzword surrounding him, right? It's just like at some point here, the dude has got to do something. And I don't put it all on him. He hasn't, you know, they one year it's a bad running game. One year it's a bad O-line. One year the receivers drop everything. I get it. Like, you know, they haven't always built a, a great team around him. But quarterbacks have to make their guys better, and he just hasn't done it. And he seems like a really stand-up guy. He's been he's been a class act uh, for for the franchise. I have nothing personal against him at all. But man, at some point here, he's heading into his eleventh season, and he's never won a playoff game, and he's got a terrible record against you know teams with winning records. And so I would love to see him be that guy who's remembered as the guy who finally got the Lions over the hump uh, and and won a, won a division title and won a couple of playoff games and, hell, maybe even sniffed a Super Bowl. But I have a feeling that after playing, you know, 13, 14, 15 years in the league, he's going to be remembered as the guy who shattered all these all these statistics and he's the franchise leader and everything, but he never actually won anything. And that's pretty depressing to think about. He's kind of like the Carmelo Anthony of, of the NFL. That is exactly, exactly what he is. 
Exactly. Well, yeah, that's it. That's probably the. That's probably. I'm going to steal that from you, actually, because that's a perfect comparison. I want to thank today's guest, Tim Alberta, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim Alberta and read his work in Politico magazine. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to True Writer Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.